This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Abura. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which would be kind of walk, walkways of San Quentin's death row without a gang, without a, a group of people around you. So after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then you said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out, so that you're... That's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William McGarrow. Bill, today we're covering David Parker Ray, also known as also known as the Toy Box Killer. This is a really interesting and in fact atypical story as far as these serial killers go, at least from what I read, there's a lot of elements that aren't consistent with other killers. Uh, so we'll get into that. I want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and check us out on Patreon at Death Row Diaries where you'll get bonus episodes, in fact, one a week that are not available anywhere else. That is patreon.com slash death row diaries. Bill, before we start, you said you wanted to make an announcement. Well, yeah, I just wanted uh, the audience to um, check out Hot Garbage Podcast with Nisha and Bubba Badass. They had me on their show um, a couple weeks ago, and the show is now out about what we talked about. So hey, check them out. They're a good podcast. They bring in some live coverage, some humor to cold cases, and they are a pretty stand-up duel. So check them out if you get a chance. And the name of the podcast is? hot garbage fantastic yeah I've uh, I know uh, the folks as well and I vouch for them it's good times so David Parker Ray he's known as the toy box killer this is maybe the worst I've seen and it's maybe because he was so descriptive in what he was doing and documented it but uh Man, I like I had a hard time sleeping last night after reading about this. Yeah, this guy was a character. And let's not confuse that with people of character. He was a character. And look, we just did an episode on the candy man. This guy has a cool name too, and I'm not here to to bring fame to this guy or anything. Any man's a cool name for a freaking serial killer that did horrible things. And this guy, the Toy Box Killer, that's a pretty interesting name, right, Matt? 
Yeah, but one of the differences between this guy and the Candyman and most of the other serial killers is he kind of gave himself this name. He called his torture chamber little little trailer thing, a uh, little mobile trailer. He called it the toy box. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, he he was kind of a mechanic, handyman. He was very good with his hands, and he built this out of a old uh, like locomotive trailer. He built this chamber, and it had about a, they say up to a hundred thousand dollars in apparatuses that he uh, constructed: chains, whips, sex toys, uh, leg spreaders. Uh, pliers, he had like every type of apparatus, things to hold people in place so they would be immobilized. Just really scary thing. It's, it's like a horror freaking movie what this guy was about. So as you mentioned, Ray, uh, his name is David Parker Ray. Um, look, he is um, the epitome of what a seer is uh, about, serial killer. But we must remember that he was suspected of 60 plus murders. He was actually never convicted of a murder. He was caught for things related to torture, rape, sodomy, kidnapping, abduction, all of these things. But the reason they caught him was because live victims escaped and we'll get into that but we have to remember that not all serial killers are convicted of crimes of murder um we always have to speculate and the rely on evidence that's there a, a name comes to mind is the hall case the serial killer who killed all those little, those young girls he was um convicted of raping and also kidnapping a young woman. And, but they know he was a serial killer. They put him in prison and because of uh, a young man who was working with the FBI, uh, they actually kept him in prison because he was gonna get out. You know, this guy was a, a, a Civil War buff and he was in prison. There's actually a series made called Blackbird that came out about this guy. He wrote a book also called In With The Devil. Um, it's an interesting case, and there's a lot of similarities to this case because this guy was never murdering anybody. Yeah, never convicted. Um, and maybe part of that was luck because of where he was from, you know, very rural area. I still don't understand how all the bodies disappeared, but uh, I guess we can get into that later. So let's give a little background on this fella. Yeah, so um, his father is Cecil Ray, mother is Nettie Opal Jensen, but he lived with his mother's parents, uh, Russell and Dolly, on a small ranch because, well, honestly, his father and his mother were very poor. He had limited, uh, I guess, contact with his father, who was an alcoholic, and his dad was violent um, according to him, him remember we're also getting this from the, the killer himself he said that his father at a very early age gave him magazines 
with S and M and you know porn. He was very shy in high school. He was bullied. Look, it's nothing extraordinary. As I've said a million times, serial killers are wired this way. He was going to kill no matter what they did to him. He could have been a star athlete, and he still would have killed. But he was a little shy. He was bullied. Had absolutely zero to do with this. You know, I get really tired of hearing all these psychologists, these so-called experts on serial killer, bemoan how the, the serial killer was tortured as a child, he was abused, and that's why he turned to doing this hogwash, okay? Hogwash. That's got nothing to do with it. Matt, you and I have covered the I-Fi killer. Freaking great-looking guy. He was popular. He was an NFL freaking football player, star athlete at Oregon uh, University, star athlete in high school. He was actually picked to be a freaking centerfold for Playgirl, for God's sakes. Serial killers are going to do what serial killers do because they're wired to kill. They don't do this because they're shy or because they were bullied or because their daddy talked to them and gave them magazines. That's a bunch of crap. So I've given my little speech about that. You guys know how I feel about it. You guys know why I know this because I've spent more time with more serial killers than anybody on earth. And I'll repeat that. I am the person who has spent more time with serial killers than anyone on earth. I lived with them for 40 years. I didn't interview them in a, in a room with over a cup of coffee and a hamburger where the serial killer knew that they were in charge. It was me partaking with them, fooling them into believing that I was like-minded. And that's how I got it out of them over decades of living on death row. This guy here, forget about what he says about, look at what he actually is doing rather than what he says. So that was my little rant there, so you know, by the way. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, he talks a big game. He's he's very verbose. He's very um, braggadocious about what he's doing. And so, you know, he's claiming that he was a rapist since he was in his teenage years, since he was like 14 years old. And, um, and of course... Yeah, no, you're right. But let's let's talk about a little bit about his high school as well as his army days and what he did for a living. That kind of gives insight into how this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. How he's able to create this toy box that he calls his torture chamber. I'll be back. Yeah. Okay. So, pretty bad upbringing. Alcoholic father. Whatever. Uh, what does he do at that point? Well, after high school, he, joined, he enlists in the army and he works as a general mechanic. And he's pretty good at what he does. He actually gets out of the army with an honorable discharge and then takes a job as a maintenance man for the New Mexico Parks Department in truth or consequences in New Mexico. That's a crazy ass name for a place, but hey, it actually exists. And he actually, you know, you have your experts talking about that most serial killers can't keep jobs because of these transient. This guy has one job for the rest of his life. He works as a maintenance guy at the New Mexico Parks Department. So that gives you insight into what this guy knows. He's a very good handyman. He works great with tools. He's a mechanic. So 
he's a very good understanding of how contraptions work, and that's really where he gets the knowledge to build this toy box, which he calls a toy box. So he, um, you know, there's a lot of, everything we know about this guy, we know after he's arrested, because for his entire life, and this is since the 1950s, I've only seen one other case of a guy that got caught later on in life after raping and killing between the 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and you know who that is too, uh, Matt. This is a rare thing for a guy to have this type of murder spree, raping spree, torture spree for so long and finally gets caught way after the fact. So what we know about him in the 50s is he started raping around the 1950s. And how do we know this? He had these audio recordings in his place and he actually said in his, um, in these statements that, you know, I've been, and I'm gonna quote him, so you guys don't think this is me, but this is his quote. It's a recorded statement that was in his trailer. It says, I've been raping bitches ever since I was old enough to jerk off and tie little girls' hands behind their back. This is him, this is part of an excerpt from him talking. And look, he says, that he developed this thing about torturing and wanting to kill and rape as an 11 year old boy. That's him the word. He didn't do it through an interview because he knew that the police were listening to him. This is something he did way before he got caught. But these are recordings he had in his trailer. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got uh you know, he lives in middle of nowhere, New Mexico. I mean, he works in a state park for God's sake. And, and so he has a comfortable life. He has a low living expenses. He's, uh, has a, you know, whatever reasonable salary. So he's got this expendable money to build his like fantasy torture chamber. That's exactly right. You, you, you hit the nail around the head. He has a steady job, he has a steady income, very low um, housing. So he has money to dump into all these fantasies that he has, which is to torture and murder women. And, and we know because he started his, that he started his killing spree in 1957 because he told his first wife what he had done. So. Um, so let's look at his MO. Let's look at what he really does. So he kidnaps women and then he holds them in his toy box, which is that trailer, up to three or four months. And in this trailer, he would rape them, torture them, uh, with at one point the willing participation of his wife. Now that's pretty insane that this guy was doing this with a particular woman that was helping him. At one point, his daughter was involved as well. Yeah. So that's pretty insane at this, yeah. Yeah, those are the the two things that jump out as being abnormal. This is uh, Cindy Hindi, that's her name, uh, who I guess he met at the state park. She was employed there as well. 
have you heard of another serial hey. killer? Hmm? Oh, no, go ahead, Matt. Um, have you heard of another serial killer who had a female, I, I wouldn't say accomplice, like a, just a female partner involved in what they were doing? I mean, she was just as into this as he was, it seems like. Well, yes, there's been a number of other serial killers that did have accomplices that, in fact, were women. Most of the time, they're other men or boys. But yes, there have been a number of serial killers that have had women. This guy here, he, he met this woman, as you mentioned, during the state park, and he knew she was involved. She was on, uh, she had warrants for her arrest in Washington state for drug charges, grand theft. But they became romantically involved and over that romance, they bonded over the fact that both of them had violent sexual fantasies. Um, but look, this guy isn't like, for some reason this guy was appealing to women. Look, he was had four different wives at four different times. He divorced four times. He has two kids. And one of his children, Glenda, Jesse Jean Ray, is actually one of his accomplices. And she actually went to the FBI and told them about what her father was doing to women. Uh, he, she gave details about how they were being uh, tortured, how they were being, uh, all these things were going on, but they didn't believe her and they left it at that. This is pretty insane that the accomplice of a killer, his own daughter, comes to the FBI, says, look, my father's doing this. He's torturing women, he's killing women, and they didn't believe her. I guess going to the trailer and finding this freaking, this toy box of torture devices would have been the first thing I would have done as an FBI agent, but they gave her no credibility and they let her go. And I feel like I can't find it on the timeline that I crudely constructed, but so she was participating as well. I don't know the extent, but did she continue participating after she called the FBI or was that when she had decided she'd had enough? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And it seems to me from what I've read that Cindy Hindi, his wife, was his last accomplice. And she was the one that was participating in all these last cases. Um, and, 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 and actually, she was the participant in the last rape of the woman who actually escaped. So and there was, and we'll get into that, but so I believe that at that time, Glenda was not involved with her father directly. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we talk, oftentimes we talk about if these types of guys, if they, if they have a steady amount of, of victims, over the course of several years or decades, or if they have like a period where they're just, they're doing it every day or whatever, like how does he uh, rank in terms of that? Yeah, it, 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 in my opinion, he, he definitely had more um, accomplices. His daughter at one point, Cindy Hindi, I'm willing to bet that he had other accomplices as well. And we know this, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why I know this. So the contraptions in his place play a role in this and what I know. So 
he had uh, fur-lined coffins, mirrors mounted on the ceiling uh, above the tables so the victims could, where the victims were strapped and they could see how he was raping them. He also built like wooden tables where his victims would be bent forward and they were immobilized where he would have his accomplices himself as well as his dogs and other friends of his sexually rape these women. So there were a lot of people that were involved and knew about him that kept their mouths shut. And this is just sometimes when you fuel this type of behavior, a lot of people get involved in it that normally wouldn't be because they get into this kind of uh, sexual frenzy. And because he, he was into what was he was into, of course, you find people of like-mindedness, meaning other people who like sexual fantasies involving rape, torture, uh, kidnapping. And that's, I believe, how he was able to find his accomplices. And as I said, that apparatus that held women down, he had some of his friends come over and also rape the women. You don't get involved in that kind of stuff unless you're into it. So there was a lot of people that knew about Ray that did not come forward in all the years that he was continuing with this, which we know to be decades as well as that we know that investigators and police believe there was more than 60 victims to this serial killer. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the daughter a little bit more? Cause that sticks out as being extremely weird to me. Do you think he was abusing his daughter prior to her, uh, participating in this stuff? Well, yeah, there had to be a point where for her to get involved and her to trust her with the information that he gave her, which was to see him commit these crimes and that she participated in these crimes, it, that takes a bit of, uh, of control. That also takes trust. And that trust comes when you physically dominate somebody, you physically physically and sexually abuse that person. So I believe that in fact, yes, he did um, probably sexually abuse and torture his daughter and she became a willing participant later on and he trusted her with that information. It's a very uh, horrible situation that this would happen to a child, obviously his daughter, but um, it did in fact happen. Let me call you back when this is gonna hang up. Hey. Yeah, so he's living, uh, from outside appearances, a pretty normal life. He doesn't have any close neighbors or anything. Um, I feel like most of the people he knows personally are pretty aware of what he's doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they're keeping it to themselves. Um, Look, in, in 2011, the FBI released uh, a number of, well, actually hundreds of images that were collected during the investigation of Ray. And some of those items, including jewelry, clothes, were probably taken from victims. Uh, but this guy murdered, in my opinion, upwards of 60 to 70 women. And 
He was never convicted of any crime regarding those women because they don't know who they are. When his daughter, Glenda, who was a bullying participant and she kind of plays down what happened. Um, look, she is in some ways victim, but also participant. She, one, of the, one of the people that she is involved in, supposedly, and they have her father as a suspect in murdering her, but they have no evidence because when she went to, to the FBI, she gave details about her father's actions, that he dismembers women, that he throws them in lakes, that he burns them, that he buries them. But she could never give a detailed view of where they were at. Well, in, in 19... Um, uh, 95, Glenda, his daughter, is involved in a situation where one of her girlfriends is um, taken to a restaurant and supposedly they have an argument. And then later, Glenda, she left Jill Susan Troia with her father. And then that woman has never been heard of from accounts. Ray did write detailed accounts of sexual tortures that he buried victims, including one described as an Asian woman who fits uh, Jill Susan Troya's description. So we have a lot of evidence that this guy actually killed people. There are detailed accounts of it. They have never found bodies though. That's where the problem is. Yeah. Um, but didn't he dump many of them in uh, let's see what's the name of this little lake there in New Mexico and I don't know it's called Elephant Butte Lake uh, yeah and I'm not like a, a geological expert but you know it's New Mexico these these aren't um, it's not the Pacific Ocean right this is a, a lake in New Mexico. I don't understand how they wouldn't be able to find some remains in there. Yeah, well, you, you're right about that. And, you know, that Elephant Lake, uh, I've never heard of that, but look, everything suggests that everything he's saying is true. Um, here's another case here where, you know, among the, the, the possessions that they found according to victims with a two-page dated letter of 1990 to a young woman named Connie from an Australian man named Mark. And according to Ray's own journals, Connie was abducted and murdered December 1995. She was 18 years old. He gives descriptions, long blonde hair, birthmark on chest, was her, gave her height. Um, and look, the truth is, these cases all fit other cases that are being investigated. Um, and then we come to the case where Ray is actually abdu uh, abducted. He's actually arrested. And I think that's part of what we should take a look at in terms of what this guy is about, what really happened, how they got really hit to him, and that really police dropped the ball on this guy. And this is the case in a lot of these serial killer cases. They drop the ball. They just don't believe other people saying, look, hey, this is happening. And I think that's what we should really pick up the case of Cynthia Vigil or Vigil. 
who was abducted from Albuquerque, New Mexico, a parking lot actually. And she is again, um, you know, he's accompanied by Cindy Hindi, where uh, this woman's abducted. So you have now the girlfriend and Ray abducting a woman and what happens in her case is completely relevant to what happens in this case because she is actually the link that ties him to being the toy box killer as well as being a serial killer rapist. Yeah, so she's being held in this uh, toy box, I guess, and the two of them are explaining in great detail how they're going to torture her and that it's going to get really bad and it's going to take a while. And at some point, she's able to get out, right? Yeah, she's been tortured for about 72 hours and she kind of got a pretty good routine of what Ray does and Ray went to work. When he went to work, um, Hindi, his uh, crime partner, girlfriend or wife whatever you want to call her she leaves in a nearby table a set of keys and this young woman Cynthia Vigil or Vigil is able to grab the keys and begins to unlock the chains at which time um, Hindi sees what's going on and they begin to fight Uh, Hindi breaks a lamp over her head but Vigil is able to unlock her chain and she stabs Hindley in the neck with an ice pick, which is one of the torture devices. And she runs out of the home naked except for an iron slave collar padlocked chain around her neck. She's running down the road looking for help and a homeowner who lived in the area saw her call police and took her to his place where then her escape is official and she leads police back to the toy box where they actually then capture Ray and his accomplices and arrest them and detain, well, they detain Ray and Hindi. And around this time, um, a similar story happens, which is the Angelica Montano story. And she gives very similar accounts of what happened. And that being that uh, she was held captive by Ray when he invited her to his home to grab some cake mix. And um, after being raped and tortured, she was given a bunch of drugs, which he always states he gives some of the victims he allows to live which are barbiturates, a cocktail of different drugs where they are almost hypnotized. They can't remember where they've been, they can't remember what's going on, and they're left on the side of the road. Look, the truth of the matter is that these women were raped and tortured. Uh, The toy box killer did do it, but no one believed them, and that was a huge problem. Yeah. Well, is that scientifically... Are medically accurate that if you give someone sodium pentothal and and phenobarbital or whatever, if you drug them up, 
that they're not going to remember, you know, several days of what happened. I don't, I don't think that's accurate. So they did remember and they went to law enforcement and they still didn't do anything about it. Well, yes, they were, I don't know that the exact effects of those type of drugs on victims, but it made their accounts fuzzy. So they said they were raped, but this happened, but they couldn't tell them exactly when it happened or how it happened. So these stories were, you know, remember this is also, all between the 1950s and the 19, uh, in the late 2000s, I mean, uh, 1990s, there's not a whole lot of uh, evidence that stuff is taking place. So this is a small town. It, uh, law enforcement are not really believing these people because their, their facts are very fuzzy. I, I know that when you take drugs, your accounts become fuzzy. So I think that's what led to them not, um, you know, really accurate and they couldn't really pin it down to this guy. And, you know, God knows they didn't want to, uh, to make a mistake with this guy. You know, there was also another accomplice that he has, a 27-year-old guy, Dennis Roy Yancey. Um, he pleaded guilty to murder of a 22-year-old woman named Marie Parkett in Elephant Butte. So he confessed to helping Jesse Reyes, well, lure this, I mean, lure this woman into uh, captivity in the trailer. Yeah. So there is evidence of murders. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Yancey's like the kind of weak-minded guy, I think. It's like, do you want to rape and torture someone? And he's, yeah, I got nothing better going on. Why not? You know, he didn't have the initiative to actually start doing it himself, but if it's provided to him, then sure, he'll go along with it, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and as I mentioned before, these people are, they're treated, it's very interesting how they're treated. Yancey, for, he gets 30 years in prison, but he only serves 11 years. And then you have someone like his, his, um, his accomplice, Cindy, and she gets 36 years, and she's actually scheduled for parole in 2017. She actually gets out in 2019. Well, Ray, on the other hand. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. So look, these guys aren't really getting the kind of cases or the kind of uh, sentences you would think. And there's a very good reason for that. There are no bodies. There are no, uh, really, they found no dead bodies. They have torture, they have rape, they have abduction, they have, you know, all these different other cases. And, and, and by the way, they did give rape 224 years, but, he went in 2002, he died. So his truth went to uh, the grave with him. His daughter couldn't give any more details. Yancey couldn't give any more details because they didn't know everything this guy was doing and they didn't know where the bodies were. Mm-hmm. I guess I didn't understand why a guy this calculated would have let some of the victims go and I feel like he got lucky I feel like he got really lucky in that they were ignored but why do you think he would have done that 
That's an excellent question, and I don't have the exact reason. But look, some of these guys, when they, they rape and they kill and they murder, they do off-the-wall things. Sometimes they want to be able to see the woman walking around if they're in from the same area because it gets them off to know that that's, that's the biggest trophy at all. You know, he did all these things to her. She can't quite regret, remember what happened to her. It makes his excitement level go up. It's like having a live trophy. So I'm thinking along the lines of what other serial killers do. Serial killers like trophies. In my opinion, from what the other serial killers have told me, sometimes they let people go because it tickles their fancy. It ups the stakes of getting caught. It gets their blood going. It is that thrill seeker where when you jump out of a plane, you get this adrenaline rush. This is kind of the same thing we're dealing with here. It's unfortunate that his uh, girlfriend co-rapist got out of prison, but how likely do you think she is to reoffend given that he's dead? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, she's obviously not the dominant one in this particular relationship, but she has these particular type of fantasies. Um, there's a very good chance she will reoffend. I don't know how old she is now, but she will likely, more than likely, get involved with other acts similar to this because of her lifestyle and what she believes in. Once that tickles your fancy and that's who you are, you're always gonna be that person. Now, earlier you asked about victims, videotapes, and how this thing played out. Let me just show you how in this time, which wasn't many years ago, it was 25, 30 years ago, how, um, how these cases play out and how police don't believe stuff. So just hear this out. So there's another victim by the name of Kelly Garrett. And she is found wandering around by an off-duty law enforcement officer who she tells him what happens. But he doesn't believe her. So he leaves her on a bug stock. She also later calls police about the incident with Ray and there's no follow-up. So now they find, now Kelly Garrett, of course, there's a videotape from 1996 as part of a victim. She's found alive, police identify her from a tattoo on her ankle from these videotapes. She testifies that she got in a fight with her husband. And then she spent time playing pool with friends. One of those friends was Ray's daughter, Jessie, who she actually knew Garrett. So he takes her to a saloon, and then she feels she, she was drugged. She was taken to her father's house, and Garrett then is, goes to two days of torture before Ray drives her back to her home. Ray tells her husband that he found her incoherent on the beach. So her husband did not believe that she could not remember what really happened, and he ends up divorcing her. Okay, so time goes on, nothing happens. Finally, this guy gets caught years later, and what do they do? The own jury who heard Garrett's case during a first trial, they said, get this, 
that the story was unbelievable and that the defense that Ray put forward that the sex trailer was part of Ray's fantasy and any sex that was that happened there with Garrett was consensual the jury believed it they went through a mistrial so you can imagine how some of these women must feel when they are tortured raped by a monster like this and then monster gives a is a big story that it was all consensual and yeah well juries believe them cops believe it juries believe it this is part of this issue that i've talked about a number of times with you which is that a lot of times people aren't believed and today 2023 it's different the me too movement really gave gave people that type of impression, that kind of evidence. But in the 90s, early 2000s, you know, when a woman came somewhere and said, look, I went to a bar, I had a few drinks, she's put on trial. What were you wearing that night? Was it promiscuous? All these things tend to make people believe that it's the woman's fault. Now trials are different. You cannot put the victim on trial for what she was wearing. If she said no, it means no. But we know this now. In those days, perpetrators, serial killers got away with a lot of things because no one believed the victims. Yeah, well, that's ridiculous. And I don't know who these women's lawyers were, but there was a lock. There was a lock on the door. Uh, That should be enough right there, right? Well, yeah, but remember, you're talking about private citizens and they may say, hey, look, this is what I do. This is part of the fantasy. This is part of what we do. And it's hard to prove that unless it were in today's new founded, um, I guess, police outlook where victims are not looked upon as, you know, just people with stories. They're actually investigated properly. And you have all these databases where perpetrators can hide. So, I just think that things back then were very unfortunate for the victims of these sex crimes. And this particular guy, the toolbox killer, was a pretty, he was a monster, he's a significant monster. I believe that he definitely killed over 60 women. And I believe that the reason he just set some of them free was because he felt like it. It's just one of those things. You cannot, and I've heard, you know, numerous so-called experts that are nothing more than paper chasers. They have no idea anything about real killers because they've only read about it. I mean, I've asked you this before, Matt, would you let me operate on you if I read a few books about it? No. Exactly. So these particular people that say this stuff don't understand how killers truly are and how things are really happening in the real world of serial killers and sexual perpetrators that are serial in nature. Um, kind of lost my thought, my train of thought there because it upsets me that these people have done this for so long and really because no one was paying attention to it, they continued on and a lot of people were hurt. Children, women, other men, it's just unfortunate the, um, the magnitude of ignorance that uh, continues to work and live in this particular in this particular field of crime and punishments. Yeah, well stated. 
luckily, uh, you know, things are improving incrementally. There are still some problems, but it's not like it was in the 90s, so I guess we have that. And the fact that he's dead, you know, that helps. So I guess we'll have to leave it there for now, Bill. And until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Aguera. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. And if you see something, please call the proper authorities. Someone's life could be safe because of it. We'll see you next time.